I would be the power forward on the Mark Rosewater basketball team here. Welcome to JudgeCast. My name is CJ Schrader. This is episode number 59. Should have looked that up ahead of time. With me as always, my two co-hosts, Je- Je- Jess Dunks. I should have looked that up too. Say hi, Jess. You, you, you forgot my name. It's not like we don't do, do this all the time. Every other week. Yep. <laughs> hi guys, this is Jess. Uh, level 2 Jets from Northern California. I guess I better continue with the introduction to CJ seems unsure here. We also have Brian Perlman with us. <laughs> Who could forget Brian Perlman? Uh, I, I I don't know, you forgot me. Except he forgets Dude. his own name sometimes in the morning, but he has a special yes. pill for that. <laughs> so Brian, say hi. Brian, say something, anything. Oh, uh, uh, when you were making jokes about me being old, I, I left my mute on. <laughs> I was wondering what was happening. Uh, uh, That's like usually Brian. Uh, I was just blah, 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 blah. Oh. Even made my typical West New Smyrna joke. Oh. Yes, hi, I'm Brian Prillman, <laughs> level two from... West New Smyrna. Uh, we are consummate professionals here, and to show how professional we are, we have a very big guest with us. It's embarrassing ourselves in front of him. The Sheldock Isle himself, Sheldon Minery. Hey, Sheldon. How's it going? Sheldog Minery? Does anyone ever call you that? Uh, not that live. Oh, okay. I will back off of that one then. Uh, we'll, we'll fix that in editing. <laughs> yeah. that happen. So, Sheldon, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from. Well, I am uh, I'm a level E, or Judge Emeritus. I live in Tampa, Florida right now with my beautiful wife, Gretchen, who is a rocket scientist, and our five cats, Dasher, Cupid, Comet, Vito and Vixen. Vito uh, seems a little out of place yeah. there. Let's... Yeah, he named himself actually. Um, <laughs> hey yo, uh, Gretchen, yo. In addition, in addition to being a rocket scientist, Gretchen runs Cat Rescue that uh, called CatCrusaders.org. Uh, feel free to to stop by the website. They've rescued in the last uh, two plus years over a thousand cats and helped significantly lower the euthanasia rates here in Hillsborough County in Florida. Vito happened to be a a cat that had gotten adopted through the rescue. And then on a, uh, I think it was a weekend, she got a phone call from a vet, said, hey, we have one of your cats. And to make a long story short, the person that had adopted the cat was kind of irresponsible. The kitten, really, it was, he couldn't have been more than two months old, was irresponsible, let him out, and somebody found him wandering along the street, picked him up, took him to a vet, vet read the chip, and uh, called the rescue. And when she called the, she called the kid, it was a college kid that had adopted um, the kitten, and uh, she called the girl, and the girl was like, oh yeah, I think he got out a couple of days ago. So they decided to not give her yes. back. It's a good move. The kitten. And uh, the, one of the ways the rescue works is having a network of fosters so that you know, there are places to store the, the cats before they go up to the adoption center at the PetSmart. And there were no fosters available. So she said, hey, you know, we're going to have to bring this kitten to the house for a day or two. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And the first night he was here, it was this tiny little thing. The first night he was here, he just kind of took over. Uh, he jumped up right up in bed between us and laid down. And, uh, you know, I, I noticed him kind of walking around the next day, looking at the house going, all this stuff is mine now. <laughs> the problem with cats is like, once and, you have, uh, you know, like I have, I have three cats, but once I had two cats, adding another cat wasn't a problem, right? Like I already, I'm already used to it. And so once you have three cats, you can just have four cats. That's not a big deal either. Yeah, well, I always said that I always said that four. We had four for a long time because mm-hmm. uh, Vixen's still a kid, and uh, I always said that from four to five is the line from normal to crazy cat person. <laughs> uh, well, 
and then then um, earlier this earlier this year, I don't know, it was late last year. But basically, the same situation happened where a foster had to surrender the kitten, and we took it for just a couple of days, and she jumped. I mean, I think the first time I sat down at my desk. She jumped right up into my lap and curled up and went to sleep. And, you know, I was lost after that. So we ended up we ended up keeping her as well. But I'm sure judges would rather talk about judge stuff. I don't know. A lot of I don't know. If you, I, I don't I know. have a cat, so I was just going to let you all keep going. I have a dog, but not a cat. If you look at if you look at Facebook posts from random judges, I would say that the judge Fair. community is very cat heavy. Yeah. Fair. So, <laughs> so to, to continue answering the question, uh, I started judging in <laughs> 1996 or early 97, I think actually. It was the first, it was the first Grand Prix Amsterdam that I certified at. And I, I'd gone to play and went like 3-2 in one on the first day or something. Obviously, I didn't, didn't make tape day two and I was looking for something to do. And I wandered by the Wizards of the Coast booth and a guy who was like, hey, you. I was like, yeah. He said, do you like magic? I was like, I love magic. He said, do you know the rules of magic? I said, of course I know the rules of magic. He said, would you like to be a judge? And I said, I don't know. What does a judge do? So he explained run tournaments, blah, 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 you know, the, the, the things that, that we do in a more condensed form, of course, this is 1996. It's like, oh, I'm mostly doing that already. He was like, well, why don't you take the test? So I did. And back in the day, your score on the test determined the level you started at. So I never actually served as a level one judge. I went straight into, I went straight into level two and then at GP Antwerp in 98, me, Geese, and Yop were all certified at level as level threes in the same day. Do you remember who it was that that first pulled you aside? I can picture him, but I don't remember his name. Yeah. And I'm he, I'm sure he hasn't worked for Wizards of the Coast for a long, long time. I, I was going to say, I'm sure if he did, he would see. I mean, you know, yeah. He'd be the guy who's who certified yeah, show. I absolutely have no idea. Yeah. Uh, so before we go much further here, I should I should mention that this show is going to be a little bit more informal. Uh, it's mostly just going to be us. We have an opportunity here to talk to Sheldon about anything we want, and we're going to take that opportunity. Uh, we don't even have a lot of emails to discuss, although we do have some few topics. So basically, we're just going to be coming at Sheldon with uh, whatever things we think will be interesting to the listeners, or at least just interesting to us, and the listeners can deal with it. And we're also going to be uh, reading some things that people sent us to ask Shoden because for some reason we said we would ask him everything they sent. We did say that. We did say that. We didn't say we would. We did. We also promised not to necessarily have it on the air. Yes. But we definitely said we would ask him everything. So, so, so Sheldon, we've had uh, uh, Jared Silva on to talk about the the responsibilities of a level four. We've had Toby on, but it's always been to discuss, you know, Miss Trigger. And I say always, I think it's been once. But it was 100% of the time. 100% of the time we discussed Miss Trigger. Uh, however, before we talk about what a level E judge does and what that means, can you share a little bit with uh, the listening audience as to what it means to be a level 5? Well, the role of level 5 has been pretty consistent since level 5 got created. But, you know, there was a time when there was only one level 5 judge, and he was also the DCI tournament manager. And there were a handful of level 4s. The level 4s had started in the late 90s, kind of 
on a regional basis. The, the, the sort of the idea that became the regional coordinators actually had its birth way back then in making, you know, in these L4s that were responsible for regions. And I mean, it extended into Europe and, um, and Japan and whatnot. Level five came along in response to the growing pro tour mostly. You have to remember today, today the judge program is bottom up. It's, it's, it's like the organized play program where it's, it's concentrated on where the most people play the most magic. Back in the day, it was top down and it was how does everything relate to the pinnacle of achievement getting to the pro tour? So since organized play was kind of laid out that way, that, that's, that's how the judge program ended up developing. And in response to the, in response to the growing number of pro tours and uh, the larger attendance and the greater number of, of players playing magic and judges in the program, level five came along to head judge pro tours and to sort of lead lead the program both as exemplar and as sort of functional assistance to the to the judge manager. Uh, at one point, at one point, I think the most there were were six until the modern day, and then then there were six again right before I retired. And the well, I guess there were six as I retired. There was there were six for about a minute uh, when we promoted Lens and I said goodbye. The guys that had already had judge pro tours, so Colin Jackson, Rune Horvick. Like Guckel, of course, uh, geese were immediately promoted to from four to five. And then Yap and I were conditionally promoted waiting for our first Pro Tour head judge experience. Uh, Yap did his at GP, I mean, at the Pro Tour Columbus, and I did mine at the following Pro Tour Atlanta in 2005. So from then, we, what our real responsibility was, was more, uh, more, I think, to the judge program solely than it is today. I mean, I think, I think the fives have this cascading responsibility to both the, the judges in the program and the player base. Um, at the, and again, at the time we were focused on how things related to the pro tour. So logistics were all concentrated on the pro tour. So, uh, you know, our skill set was, was developed and designed around managing a large staff. Making sure that we all had guru level knowledge because, I mean, we were the, we were really the final authorities. Uh, when, whenever a, a five spoke about anything about the game, it was official. The role more, the role morphed, uh, a few years later into each of the fives being, being responsible for sort of areas of the program. And this was in the, in the time when we were transitioning between the top down approach and the bottom up approach. Uh, you know, organized play has gone through a lot of changes over the last couple of years. And I, and I think it's gone the right direction. Again, we're concentrating all the resources where everybody plays magic. And instead of paying attention to the top three or 400 guys, uh, I mean, I always held the belief that, that the 300 guys playing at the pro tour weren't the, weren't the specifically important ones. It was the hundred thousand that wanted to be playing on the pro tour that yeah. were, that were the, that were the most important. So uh, it, the the role of level five morphed into uh, being responsible for certain areas of the program, like Toby with policy. My particular role was leadership. So you know it was my responsibility to to uh, develop the help develop the leaders that we have in the program today. What the what the L fives do anymore? I uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you what a, a level E judge does. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. What does it that level? Was, that was going to be my next question. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, well, I, I get I get all the I get all the ac- the same accolades that the level fives do, but I don't have to do any of the work. Oh, sweet. Yes. It does sound um, like a sweet. As a matter of fact, you know, so I retired um, uh, after Worlds 2011, and Ricardo happened to be coming down to Florida for an event in January 2012. And of course, you know, you can't, I can't have Ricardo come to Florida without him staying here. So he came to the house and we were sitting in the house one afternoon that he was here. And he's like, so what do you do with your time now? Because I will tell you that being those of you who are aspiring to higher level, higher levels of the judge program, be careful what you wish for because sometimes it can be a lot of work. It's it's rewarding work. I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Uh, I love doing it most of the time, but it was, I mean, it was, it was a time investment. So Ricardo said, well, so what do you know, not, now that you're not writing documents and you know, helping people advance and things like this, what are you doing with your time? And I happen to have my laptop nearby. I said, let me show you. And I wheeled my laptop around to him. I pulled up my email. <laughs> I, I pulled up the level four list and clicked on a, on, a, on a level five list and clicked on a couple of emails and I hit the delete key. That's what I do. I was halfway envisioning. I turned my laptop around and showed him Skyrim. (laughs) What what kind of of Philistine plays Skyrim on a computer? That's a a platform game. That's a PlayStation game. Ah. It's so buggy on the PlayStation. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. It's a great game, and I played it on the PlayStation, but it's so buggy on the PlayStation. It crashes so often. There's a fix for that. You, is there? There's the, the same on the game. Xbox. Aww. It's the same game file. Um, you can go delete, and it'll... Because I remember there was a hang when you went into water problem uh, that, that just deleting your save game file, or the save day game utility, solved. But as, uh, a, as a level E judge, I... I basically stand by as an advisor to the judge program. You know, Andy will sometimes give me a buzz and say, hey, what do you think about this thing? Uh, the other fives or fours will say, hey, what do you think about that thing? Um, I'll occasionally stick my nose into a conversation. Uh, but it's 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 mostly, excuse me, it's mostly enjoying the benefits of having made good service. And it uh, it's also gotten you... Uh, you're now able to still continue to go to large events on the coverage team. That's correct. It, um, as a matter of fact, the first person, the first person after aggression that I told I had decided to retire was Scott Larrabee. And about a day later, I got an email from Greg Collins, who is responsible for the Pro Tour coverage staff. Heard you're retiring. Here's a seat. <laughs> um, Here you go. So I, I've been I've been very very much enjoying doing Pro Tour and GP coverage. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's the surprisingly surprisingly the days are a little longer. Uh, I have I noticed that I have more time. I had more time even when I was head judging Pro Tour. I had more time for EDH and fun when I was judging than I do on the coverage. Mostly because we're there at the same time in the morning that you are, and we stay probably an hour later doing wrap-up and whatnot, you know, shooting B-roll and, uh, you know, Brian and Rich in the tournament center and things like that. So so it's a little bit of a longer day. There's obviously less walking. And I got to tell you, uh, after I did my first after I did my first event you know, on coverage, uh, which was on Pro Tour Honolulu, somebody asked, well, so what's the difference? And I said, I got to tell you, doing coverage is lonelier. No. Um, and 
I spend my spend most of my day interacting with six or seven or ten different people, and that's about it. Whereas head judging the Pro Tour, there were times where I was I was managing a staff of a hundred plus, including the, again back when we did the Open Pro Tours. That included the entire main event and public event staff. So doing coverage can sometimes be a little more solitary. Uh, you know, I'll be in the booth for four hours with BDM, or I'll be on the floor as the sideline reporter for a couple of rounds. And it's, you know, it's basically me and the guys that come in the feature match area. So it's, it's, it's a lot more social, but it's also a lot less walking. Can I ask, can I ask, uh, what was it like the first time that you did coverage with the coverage team? Cause I remember watching that pro tour uh-huh. and there was a lot of stuff that happened there and, and I know there was a lot of reaction. I think it was that pro tour where the, the line, you know, the, the rules change when the lights go on. I think it was the line that came out of that one. Uh, and there was a lot of criticism of that. Like, how did you react to all that? How was that? How, how did you feel that that all went? Was it like walking into a new world of magic as opposed to judging? Not really. Um, because, you know, there were, Toby, Toby and Ricardo were there and they, there were a couple of things that they still pulled me in on the discuss. I, one thing I will tell you is no level five makes a major decision at a pro tour alone. I never right. did. I never did. None of the guys that currently at Judge Pro Tours ever did. It's, you know, even if I knew exactly what I was going to do, I would turn to one of the other great minds in magic, like Toby, like Lambo, not Lens, because we were never fives together. Damn it. Now I'm sad. I'm coming back. <laughs> All right. Breaking <laughs> like news. Screwed it here. You can, you can, you can edit that out. Oh. <laughs> Um, we can make that going to be somebody that takes it seriously. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> you know, you you wouldn't. It, there were times in the last year where I'd go to a GP and so and somebody would inevitably ask. I would get involved with something and somebody would ask. Uh, I was scheduled to head judge of a Star City event last month in Dallas, mostly because. They put the call out and I said, Hey, what do you think? Because my mom lives in Dallas and I wouldn't mind going to visit her. And they were like, sure. And of course, then I got a bunch of, as soon as they, as soon as they published it, uh, I got a bunch of, are you back? As a matter, I, I think that actually happened at the, that question came up at the, um, the SoCal judge conference. Yes, it did. Someone actually, that was exactly the question. It was Sheldon. Are, are you back? Yeah. Um, I, that, that event actually ended up falling through for me mostly because my, my mother is moving out of Texas and moving to Florida. So, so does that mean you're head judging SCG Orlando? Nobody's come up with that for me yet. So I guess not. No. The, I, I would, I would still have done the, I mean, I've gone to, I would have gone to Dallas and done the event, uh, mostly because I've got friends there. I'd like to honor my commitments, but in the transition time with my mom, I didn't really want to be not available to her. So, uh, I said, Hey, you know, things have changed. And, you know, the Star City guys are great. Uh, Nicholas Saban is, is a top like human being and there's like no worries. You know, we'll catch you next time around. But yeah, the, the rumors of my return are, um, are not true. Now, if, you know, if Andy called me one day or Toby called me one day or Scott Larry called me one day and said, look, we're in a bind, come head judge a pro tour, I would, of course, be happy to do so. So are you, are you technically a certified judge right now? Like what, what again? Are you technically a certified judge? What do you, like, what do you show up as in, in the judge center? Uh, I show up as, as, as lot, die, lines or dots in the judge center. <laughs> nice. There's just like, there's, there's not level zero. It's, there's, there's conspicuous absence. <laughs> it's like you've ascended beyond it. I like that. So, 
so just out of you said if you were if you were asked now uh, to come back now how as a as a guy doing coverage how current do you stay on the policy docs extremely well mostly okay this is good because we have a question for you later in the show um I, when when something new comes out obviously uh you know we're talking about we're talking about triggers a lot right now i'll generally ping toby and say hey you know give me the the 25 alert word or less words version and he will i mean i stay current because i got, i have to stay current if i'm doing coverage um one of the reasons i'm there is to provide a certain level of expertise about the rules of, and policy of, of professional play of magic. So it would be sort of remiss of me to not stay current. I'll usually bone up on any new policy things when I'm ready to go. You know, I'll take the documents with me. I'll read them on the airplane. I'll read them in the hotel to make sure that I haven't missed anything. Uh, so the, 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 the answer to your question, Brian, is that uh, I, I, I stay very current on policy and I stay really current on the rules because I'm still playing all the time. You know, every Thursday night I'm playing EDH League at Armada Games and rules stuff comes up. Right. Wait, rule stuff comes up in EDH. This, this happens at your store. I don't know. Rule about. stuff comes up in EDH. <laughs> you would think with the twenty judges, rules come up all the time. What does multiplayer rules? Oh yeah, that's true. I mean, there was a there was a situation there was a situation just last week where guy was at four and had Martyr's Bond and doubling season in play, and other guy went to kill him. Uh, I think he he. he he threw some, he, he was playing, uh, Borba Rigmus and Rage, and he threw a couple of lands at, he threw two lands at the guy's head. Said, well, with, with those activations on the stack, uh, and of course, if you want to back up and let the first one resolve before you shoot the second one, that's fine with me. With the two of them on the stack, I'm gonna Orum's Thunder the guy's Martyr's Bond with the kicker. And if you don't know Orum's Thunder, it's a disenchant that if you, if you, uh, pay the red kicker, it deals damage to the controller equal to the CMC of the enchantment of the artifact. So, like, I'm going to steal this kill away from you. And the question was, of course, do I still have to sacrifice something to the, one of my enchantments because of the Martyr's Bond? And the answer being no, because Forum's Thunder deals the six damage to him and destroys the, and, you know, just, and triggers his Martyr's Bond. But then when we go to put the Martyr's Bond on the stack, we check state, state best actions. He's dead. All his stuff leaves the stack. No sacrificing for me. Yeah, that that is where where it gets weird. Still, like if you take yeah, out so, someone in the middle so, of doing something. Every now, every now and again, I'll I'll let. I mean, Armada Games is home to about six thousand levels of judges, too, not counting me. So uh, a lot of the times, I'll ha- have one of the you know one of the L ones that is around answer the questions because you know they need to learn too. Mm-hmm. So the the I I think. I think jumping back about two questions, the the answer is I stay I stay really current on what's going on in Magic because I'm still really involved in what's going on in Magic. Now let me ask when when you're doing when you're doing coverage, uh, your interaction with the judges there there have been in the last several months a lot of or when I say a lot, there have been a few, I'll say on air cheats that have been, that have been done or, or things that have been caught on camera. And we're, we're talking about, or about a broader picture than just the pro tour here. Correct. Right. Um, you're yes. About, you're talking about, okay. Grand Prix, maybe, I, I know you don't do Star City coverage, but I mean, there's been, there's been some incidents. If you are watching something and you are doing commentary, and you're like, there's a moment where you're like, in your mind, you're like, hey, did that guy just 
Mm-hmm. You know, draw a card, palm a card, you know, misrepresent something. Do something unsavory. Right. What is, what is the behind the scenes reaction, uh, or as much detail as you can go into? Like, how do you notify a judge? What do you say on camera? Do you like signal the other guy, keep talking and then go run off and do whatever? The one thing is you have to remember that, uh, the, the view that we get on the monitors is not quite as good as the view that you're getting at home. So if you've got the coverage up on your, on your computer or uh, on your, um, you know, on your internet TV or whatever you're running, your, what you see of the game state is probably a slightly better picture than, than we have. At the Pro Tour, the monitors are really, really good. It must be said. Uh, at GPs, at GPs, uh, they're small. Obviously, you know, GP operating budget's not anywhere near what the Pro Tour is, and it's it's difficult to see that stuff sometimes. But when we do, we have the response. I think we have the responsibility that any other spectator would, and that's to notify a proper authority. Obviously, we're when we're doing coverage, we're a long way from the feature match area because we you don't want the competitors to be able to hear what we're talking about because we have we can see the players hands so we're going to talk about lines of play all right what do you think Barshall you know is he gonna he's gonna play the Boris Reckoner first or is he gonna drop the next you know two drop and you know you don't you don't want them to hear anything so there's a great deal of separation at uh, at most GPs the broadcast booth is on the other side of the this, the main event stage from the feature match area at the Pro Tour, the broadcast booth is in a completely different part of the building. So we're a long, long way away. Uh, if we see something, if we were to see something sketchy on the Pro Tour, it would, it would be a little bit. Now we have a, we have a Skype chat with, with Nick Fong at the scorekeeper's desk. So we could alert him pretty fast to get a judge to look into it. But the, the answer to your question is our responsibility is basically what any spectator is. We, if we see something wrong, alert a judge. And then that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're not going to talk about, we're not going to talk about anything on air that we shouldn't talk about, uh, like an investigation, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibilities for me to, you know, to turn to Marshall and like, and say, Marshall, did, do you think that he just drew an extra card? You know, we'll get a judge in one. We'll talk about it because it's, it's an ongoing thing. You know, it's, it's, it's part of what the viewers just saw. So we're, we're certainly not going to pretend like we didn't see it. Uh, we won't speculate on any investigations. We won't talk about what might happen. We're going to talk about what happens after it does. So Judge Ricardo Testatore comes over and tells, tells us after the fact, yeah, we disqualified Guy for drawing extra card. We might report it. But mostly we leave that to the text, to the text end of the coverage. We'll, but we'll, yeah, we're, and we're sort of, we're sort of free to discuss ongoing things that are happening in the game. I mean, just, yeah, you got to think about us like we're, um, you know, John Madden and Pat Summerall in the booth, uh, at the football game. You know, we're, we're, we're reporting what's happening live. All right. So to take this on a, uh, a different track or, or actually just to go way back uh, a bit. How did you physically become level five? I asked the same question to Toby. Like, did they, did they present a plaque to you? Did you know it was happening? Did they, I don't know. What did Toby say? Uh, Toby just got a, like a letter in the mail, I think. Was that what it was? I can't even remember right now. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely what, not what happened because I know for a fact that I myself promoted, uh, Toby. <laughs> I, you know, I've had the pleasure of doing something that only Andy Hecht has done, uh, and that's promote somebody to level five. And I got to do it with both Toby at Nationals in Baltimore and Jason Lems in um, in San Francisco. And it's promoting people to four and five is the 
absolute best feeling ever. Oh, I bet. When you can, when you see somebody who's, um, that, that you've, that you might have helped or watched on this, this arc of success, you know, reach a great plateau like that. It's really, really exciting to be involved. I mean, obviously the final decision to promote somebody to fight rests with the judge manager, but, uh, in Toby's case and in Lem's case, I had the pleasure of being able to, to actually make the announcement myself. So that was pretty cool. I think the, I think, how did I? Yeah. Well, I was in that, I was in that, um, in that zone where, it was already sort of a known thing that I was going to go from four to five. I only had to, I only had to sort of complete this step of the head judging pro tour. It's L5 and, checklist. Yeah. <laughs> so at judge dinner, Sunday night at the end of the pro tour, Andy made the announcement that, you know, of course we're promoting this guy to level five. Got to help us all. <laughs> so, so you, did you know before that point, like you kind of knew it was coming, but did you know it was going to happen? Yeah. I knew, well, as soon as the program changed, uh-huh. um, at Worlds 2004, that was at Judge Dinner at Worlds 2004 was when the big announcement was made. And being out fourth time, I was involved in those discussions already. So I, I, I knew it was coming. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I knew, I knew that I was making five for, five or six months or seven months before I actually did. So as long as I, you know, as long as I didn't shoot myself in the foot somehow or screw up the pro tour, uh, which is nearly impossible for a head judge to do because he's got so many really, really, really super smart people around him. Right. Uh, you know, I, I knew I was, I knew I was in. See, I, I want like a, a secret council and I don't know, maybe a sword's involved somehow. I don't know, but. Well, I... there's a roll of quarters and a tube of, never mind. <laughs> A tube of what? Nothing. <laughs> no tubes. Tubes. Uh, let me let me ask, uh, Sheldon. You made you made the the comment earlier that you know when an L five spoke, it was official, mm-hmm. and in in a lot of ways, from a uh, uh, that still holds true with the purpose of policy. I mean, at a, at a pro tour, at a GP, when a level five makes a ruling, that you know, ripples, ripples sure. throughout the judge community. And one of the reasons you said like, you know, the L5s get together and nothing's really made, a decision's never made in the vacuum is part of the, uh, the importance of doing these. And I was kind of curious if there was ever a situation, cause, you know, part, part of, part of being a judge is evaluating mistakes and stuff like this. And I told you I was going to ask you this question. Is, was there a situation where you're like, this is my ruling. And then afterwards you were like, who maybe uh, maybe I should have gone another way or oh that wasn't right or something along those lines well uh, the short answer Brian is no uh, okay <laughs> uh, from, yep. from my from my ivory tower right now I have the advantage that looking back everything I did was perfect <laughs> <laughs> Uh, seriously? Yeah, I certainly, there have been a, there, there were a couple of times when after the fact, I was like, did I really make the right call there? And even if you have a lot of support from other really smart people, and sometimes, and, and sometimes really smart people aren't necessarily the highest level judges. You, you, sometimes you bounce things off of that freshly minted L3 because you don't, you don't necessarily always want the same perspective. Uh, one of the, one of the things that I always told judges at the Pro Tour was, doesn't matter what level you are, if you see something that you don't understand or you think we could do better, bring it up. Fresh eyes sometimes see, you know how societies can get into things and they just, well, that's, this is the way we do things and you keep doing them and then, Eventually, somebody has the courage to say, 
wouldn't it be smarter if we did it this way instead? And those that that fresh set of eyes can really bring uh, a lot of great perspective. So the the two, and I, I didn't know Brian was going to ask me this. The two that I did really think about was at Pro Tour Hollywood. There was a there's a situation. W- I'm pretty sure it was involving Jake Van Lunen as the guy who got, got screwed over. And it was a DQ that I didn't pull the trigger on. And there was a, there was, there was a question about having the right mana available to play the Wrath of God that he played or, or something. It's, it's sort of a vague memory of exactly what happened. But I remember sort of reviewing my notes and stuff that night. And I remember thinking, I think I might have let that guy get away with something. So I mean, the, the natural thing to do in that situation is review your process. Okay, how did I approach this? What questions didn't I ask here? What information did I not get in order to to get to the to the, the right ruling that I needed to get to? It's certainly, especially at the Pro Tour, it's almost impossible to make a a mistake on rules because again there are a bunch of gurus around you back in the day there weren't that many you know lee sharp-esque eli schifrin-esque rules level guys around there were oh, there were just a few of us so sometimes you were operating in a vacuum i i know there was more than one time and i'm talking way back in the day 2001 2002 i picked up the phone and called people i would uh, i remember the day before the first oh jesus was 90 Eight or ninety nine. The before the the European Championships in Berlin, we were talking about a ruling, and there were like three level fours and seven level threes, and we were arguing about. And we were split. I mean, it was it had gotten to the point where we were arguing so bad that we had stepped to opposite sides of the stage, and we were you know we were lined up in our in our argument group. No, we think it's this. No, we think it's that. And I remember we got on the phone with the rules manager at the time, Beth Morrison, and <laughs> said, we can't make a decision here. Fortunately, it wasn't live. It was, you know, it was a theoretical discussion. It was the night before. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so when I... It's kind of the definition I, of a nerd fight, isn't it? <laughs> say that again? I said it's kind of the definition of a nerd fight, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, the, the, the real thing is, you know, I went back again and I looked at my process. What, what did I not do to get where I needed to go? In this situation, and it was it was certainly a, a question of not asking the other player enough questions. I'm I'm really sure it was actually JVL, and you know he was adamant about the guy not having the land in play or not having the right manner or you know or whatever it was, and there wasn't any real evidence to to make a call one day uh, one 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 way or the other. So, you know, I tried to re- reconstruct the, the game in my brain for what had likely happened. And I think in that situation, I probably came down on the wrong end of it because it didn't get enough information. So I, the lesson of that is ask more questions. Think of think of how you're going to impro- approach asking questions, because the things that the, the, the difficult questions to answer are not state based actions and layers and triggered abilities. Difficult things to answer are the player interaction questions. The, he did this. No, I didn't. I did that. No, you said. I thought I was. So the whole player communication realm is by orders of magnitude the, the, the more difficult thing to adjudicate when you're in a match tournament, for sure. I think, I think we've done a great job 
crafting a game state that we, a, a, a way to view the game state that we like, like with the new triggers. And I know Toby has pulled out his hair trying to make it perfect. And I think one of the realizations we came to is when there are two different people involved, it can never be perfect. You know, you're never going to get perfect information out of a situation. So you just have to do the best that you can, then use your experience to make the right call. So in that particular situation, I went back and said, I think I probably made the wrong call. And I let a guy, I let a guy do something he probably shouldn't have been able to do. The other thing that left to mind when Brian asked me that question was the notorious disqualification of Charles Gindy at Worlds in Rome. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying it was the right call. When was this? I I don't think I've heard of it. Worlds 2009. Okay. Yeah, it's slightly it's before my time. One, I, don't th- I think we were, it's, it was, uh, it was when, what, M11? Master of the Wild Hunt was the, yeah. was, was yes. the card involved. Uh-huh. Oh, I remember this. Yes. Now, this was the thing. Here's, here's the thing. And, you know, this, this isn't the first, this isn't the first podcast that, that has honored me with asking for an interview. And we'll pretend that it is, though. It, it, it's <laughs> certainly supposed to be. It's, <laughs> it's certainly the most, the one with the most Brian's. <laughs> well, thank you. And, um, you know, people have asked me in the intervening year, now, four or five years now, why do you hate Charles Kennedy? And I'm like, I don't hate Charles Kennedy. Charles Kennedy is a good kid. I mean, he's, not a, I mean, he's not really a kid anymore. I mean, he's, he's just, he's a, he's a, he's a good guy who unfortunately could talk himself into a DQ while ordering a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, while this, while the, the Master of the Wild Hunt call was, was technically the correct call, I looked back at that, maybe not the next day, but maybe, you know, maybe the next week when I was writing my report and coming to believe that I could have also made the technically correct call by not disqualifying him. What, what was, by calling. what was the situation uh, briefly? It was after the game was over, after the game was over, he's like, dude, you could have killed all my guys with your Master of the Wild Hunt and you didn't. Oh, you know what? I remember this one too now. Now that you guys say it. So at the time, by our policy at the time, he, you know, he did, he didn't, he had engaged in a, fraudulent action. Right. And he, and he admitted to it. I mean, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I did, you know? And I mean, it was a case of, I think it might've been a case of rub-ins, but none of us are above that. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, I think that as the, as the story unfolded, he got, he got more and more discombobulated with telling the story. And I, I, I think that in review, I could have, I could, like I said, I could have probably, and hindsight is 2020, probably made a decision that was also technically correct that, that didn't end up with him being disqualified. Yeah, what would that be? Um, GRV? The, yeah, the, yeah, there was, well, nothing, I think, would be the, yep. Uh, he maybe could have, could have called it just a, yeah, just a GRV and not fraud. But again, by the, by the letter of the law at the time, and you know, certainly I, I wasn't necessarily always a guy constrained by the letter of the law, which is something that, something that fives from the beginning have always needed to be careful about. Because when you make a ruling, you know, we were talking earlier when a five, when a five speaks, it's official. Well, when you make a ruling, you know, you've thrown a very large stone into the pond and the ripples are going to go everywhere. So you have to be really careful about when you deviate from policy or when you creatively interpret policy. And um, this is this is why I don't have a, a lot of harsh criticisms for guys making difficult calls in difficult situations. You know, being you, you're you're under the gun and you think that this is the right call. You make what you think is the right call. I think that 
L5s have historically been really, really good about not um, legislating from the bench, as it were. Uh, you know, well, I don't, I don't like our this trigger policy, so I'm just going to ignore it. You know, nobody, nobody has ever really done that. But there's, you know, there, there are just so many moving parts to Magic, and again, player communication that there's, there's no flowchart. Uh, one of the things that I think a lot of lower level judges judges want is a neat, hundred percent effective diagram yes. how to rule on everything yeah and it just it doesn't exist there are just way the 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 game is way <clears throat> too complex and the player interactions are way too complex with the 34 passes of priority or whatever it is in a turn to to make that that kind of flow chart which one, means experience has to be a has, has to be a great teacher one of the uh the most I'll say one of the most frequent questions on like IRC is we'll have like a new level one come in. And one of the questions is like, Hey, I've got this scenario that happened at FNM. How do I tell the guys lying to me? And it's just like, ah, we can't. That's yeah. You're just going to have to base experience and use judgment because there's really, and we can talk about the types of questions to ask, but we can't, there is no checklist of like, yep, yep, yep. He said this, he said this, he said, oh, he didn't say this magic word. Right. Yeah, there are, there are certainly techniques. There there are certainly interview techniques and investigation te- techniques that you can use, but nothing is foolproof. It's a it's all about it's all about creating an intelligence picture. It's about taking a bunch of disparate elements and fitting them together in the into a view of what you think happened. And, and you do that by reviewing the game state. You do that by asking questions of the players, sometimes listening to what they don't say as well as what they do say. I mean, it's it certainly our whole our whole podcast could be on how to do an interview. And I'm not even I'm not just talking about a DQ interview. I'm just talking about getting to the bottom of what happened in a game state. So, yeah, you have to have I think think process is really important there. And again, understanding how to as quickly as you possibly can, because you don't have infinite time and you don't want to slow the tournament down, getting to the bottom of the situation and getting to the resolution that best fits our policy. So why do you hate Charles Gindy? Because <laughs> uh, he's from Florida. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, a lot of that investigation comes from mentorship as well as experience. Like, yeah, seeing, yeah, seeing an awkward situation come up uh, and then watching someone that you respect deal with it. Like when I first started judging, I had a really hard time with investigations and, and whether or not I should DQ somebody or whether or not they, they broke a rule on purpose. Or, and, th- and then I started to work more with Eric Levine, and uh, he's very good at that kind of thing. And got I got much better at it because I could watch him do it. Well, yeah, you watch you you, you watch people you watch people do it, and you know, magic judges are all really smart, high functioning people. That's how they got to be judges in the first place. So every one of us from level from level one all the way up, maybe level two because level ones don't have the the same breadth of experience, but everybody's a thinker. You know, L1s included. Everybody's a thinker and you watch people do things and you learn from them and you see both, hey, that guy just asked a really, really deep and probing question very simply. That's a good thing for me to do. Or you watch somebody and you go, oh, I don't want to ever do it like that. Mm-hmm. And there, there are tech, again, there, there are techniques you can use, but don't, don't ever fall into the trap that there's a silver bullet answer. Oh, the, the guy looked up into the right. He must be lying. That's, that's only part of the picture. And you, you sometimes take small elements like that. Uh, I happen to have some interrogation experience in my other career and you, you, you 
take all the elements. You don't just take one and, and glom onto it. You, you assemble a picture from whatever data that you can gather. Uh, one, of the, one of the best techniques, and I don't even know if I'm going to call it a technique, is bringing the player closer to you. I don't, I don't mean physically, I, I mean emotionally. If you've heard of the book, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, uh, one of the things that the author, whose name escapes me right now, Stephen Covey, um, talks about is linkage. When you're in a relationship of any kind, whether it's whether it's friendly or adversarial, is creating linkage between you and the other person. And getting the player closer to you, getting the player to trust that you're not out to get him, but you're just out to get the truth, is going is going to lead you to be more likely to actually get to the truth. And this is why over the years I cultivated very strong trusting relationships with the Pro Tour players because I. I you know I wanted them to know that they could be honest with me and you know I wasn't necessarily going to use it against them you know I wasn't I wasn't there to lower an elbow into anybody's head uh, you know I I don't want to shoot anybody but when it comes time to pull the trigger you have to not flinch away from it either you, you don't if, you know if if I if I go back to judging someday if I never DQ another player again that would that would be just fine with me something I think people sometimes think that judges enjoy disqualifying people yeah yeah it's I, I mean there are judges that get a little too full of themselves when they first get the shirt. You know, this folks folks that aren't used to being in a position of responsibility or authority get into one and they sort of misinterpret what it's about. And I, you know, I got to be honest. There ain't a lot of people who are like, well, you know, you're level five, you can do what you want. I'm like, no, it's actually kind of exactly the opposite. Yeah. Uh, like we were talking about earlier, I gotta, I have to pay attention to everything that I do. I have to pay attention to everything that I say, no matter how casually. If it's involving magic, somebody's listening, and it, it's. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, especially with you, you guys that are just coming up through the ranks right now. I'll be honest about when it really turned the corner for me. Uh, I, and I, I try to say this without as much ego as I can. I, I was always kind of a star. Mm-hmm. And coming through the ranks, starting at a at a higher level and making a high level relatively quickly, you know, I got the I got the call to to the big GPs and the pro tours. And the top when I really really turned the corner was when I realized it wasn't all about me. I realized that I had a level of responsibility to other people, and that leadership that leadership isn't about making yourself the shining star. Leadership is about preparing other people for success. And, you know, it was just the, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an epiphanous moment with angels coming down in the sky lighting up or anything, but it was just, it was a realization that responsibility is about taking care of everybody else too. And I think that's, that's what the people who get to the highest levels of nearly anything come to realize that it's not all about their own honor and glory. It's about it's about bringing something special to the entire organization. That's really that's really good good advice for for I'll say like the level twos who are who are striving for level three, you know, or, or I mean just anybody really is just you know I think I think I've I heard it as 
uh, just to paraphrase, you know, Ben told it to me through you or from you, which is, you know, leaders, leaders don't make themselves look good. They make others look good. Yep. And that's, that was, that's something that I've, I've taken or tried to take with me. Yeah. It's, it's always awesome hearing, hearing people two or three, two or three, uh, stops on the express down the line <laughs> repeating things that I've said, or and even better when they repeat them back to me. Well, let me tell you something about leadership. <laughs> it's about preparing other people. To accept. Yeah. yeah. So ben let, me, told you that, didn't he? <laughs> let me ask uh, another question. Uh, you said that the, you had this epiphany um, and uh, where it was kind of like a self-realization. And then in in the in the description of the 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 time where you were thinking about, like, maybe I should have pulled the trigger, that kind of thing. There was a self-realization. What is a piece of advice that you've received in like coming coming up through the years that that really you got it. You were like, wow, that that really means something that made a difference that changed the way I was going to go about being a judge. Well, you know, James Elliott asked me this basically this the same question in a little video thing he did. Uh, he stole at, it from me at, at World. I'm not sure he did. a year ago. He stole it from me. Yeah. Uh, well, this was like a long time anyway. <laughs> Back when I was coming up, we didn't have this powerful, really elegant structure that the judge program has right now. There, there are a lot of people, people, people at level five and four and three and two all cascade down in order to help the, the people at the level below them. And we have this, we have this great organized formal system. We have checklists and we have education. You know, we have, we have real education. We have, Judge seminars, you know, with, with this great and powerful program. Back when I was coming up, there wasn't anything like that. Uh, we, I, we were inventing it on the fly. I mean, we were really just making it up as we went along. So when specifically it was when James asked me, so who was your mentor? I was like, I, I didn't have one. Uh, you know, there were a couple of people that I watched. There were a couple of people who uh, I admired. Mike Guppel is the name that comes to mind most, most often for me who was there before I was. Nat Fairbanks was also a great, great judge. But there wasn't really anybody that took me under my under their wing and said, you know, here, I'm going to I'm going to help you. Uh, we didn't really have that much mentorship back in the day. And we did. Uh, when, you know, I'm talking 99, 2000, 2001. We were we were really inventing what became the judge program. Now, uh, we were we were thinking about we were thinking about surviving. At that point, think about, you know, think about a pro tour staff now, just just the main event pro tour of, I don't know, it's 30 ish judges. We were doing pro tours back in the day with 22 or 25 judges, and we weren't we didn't necessarily have the luxury of turning away outstanding judges. You know, we could do a pro tour today and pick 30 judges and then pick 30 different judges and they do just a great as great a job and pick 30 different judges after that. And they still do, uh, you know, a great job. We didn't have a luxury back in the day. And maybe our 22nd, 23rd, 24th guys didn't have as much experience as we did. So really, most of what we were doing at the time was getting through the events. I mean, we didn't have event proceed. We didn't have too many event procedures. Uh, Mike, Mike Uppel was, was great at coming up with some of those. You know, he's a, he's a professional organizer and it, it bled through into the program. But we didn't have the luxury of the mentorship that we have today. We were just making it up and we found out what worked and what didn't work. We, something simple as, and again, it was a new set of eyes. We were sorting lands. You sorted lands and there were for the land station and 
we were sorting we were sorting lands in in a horizontal line plains and then islands to the right of them and then swamps to the right of them and forests and mountains to the right to the right and somebody was like you know it's faster if you do it in a circular pattern instead and everybody you know every, everybody's got a uh, hand, handfuls of land and is just looking up like holy crap how did we not ever think of that I, I had that same at, at like my first GP when I was sorting land. It was a circle. Oh, me yeah, too. What kind of sorcery is what kind of sorcery is this? Literally the exact same situation with the exact same advice, and I was like, "What?" It's probably the same like when you pass out match slips. You know, just grab two, two. and put them on, two. Yes, and put them on both sides of the table number. <laughs> Whoa, wizardry! <laughs> yeah, I just doubled yeah. my efficiency. Yes, right. So yeah, I think you know we we. I, I can't really point to uh, to answer the question, Brian. I can't really point to any single events that I would point to as really, really formative. It was pay attention to the alligators from the get go, and uh, as we got more experienced, you know, as we got to our twenty fifth or thirtieth or thirty fifth pro tour, you know, then we started really getting it down. We weren't as good at passing it down because we did we just simply didn't have the infrastructure that we do today. I mean, I was I was thinking when when we were at that SoCal Judge Conference, there were I think 112 judges there. There was a time we didn't have 112 judges in the program. I mean, could you imagine that we'd have 3,500 judges one day? No, that number's I, insane. I, I absolutely I absolutely could not see that end. We you know this this the the, the organized play shift has been uh, some numbers was some numbers years in the work. And, you know, you, you saw how to invert the system and, again, focus those resources where they more needed to be. But, yeah, 3,500 judges, 4,000 judges. It, I, when we hit 2,500, I was like, can, yeah, can we keep going? You know, where, where's this? Where's the system going to break down? Yeah. Uh, especially since, you know, especially since being being a mostly volunteer network, it's not like, you know, if, if you're paying me a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to lead an organization of twenty five hundred people, I'm I and the people beneath me have a have a pretty significant motivation to get as much information and as much training as we can out to the people we work for. And we have a budget for it. In the judge program, I, you know, you guys, you guys are doing a lot of this on your own time, and there's, you know, there's, there's no, there's no way to get all that training and information out as efficiently as if we could have, you know, professional instructors, because nobody, you know, nobody does this full time. Right. Uh, so, I, I actually do judge full time <laughs> and make a real living. Uh, real I don't know living. if I call it real, but <laughs> at the moment, I, my full time job is judging at a magic store, so. Yeah, I mean, there there are certainly people who <laughs> I know there are judges who are employed full time doing magic things. Well, I think your yeah. your point was program stuff, right? As opposed right, to yeah, I'm yeah. talking about program stuff, not yeah, I'm talking yeah, I'm not talking about event stuff because I know that Star City employs what like sixteen thousand people or something now, right? Something like that. Every promising looking uh, judge. Yeah, just like, <laughs> yeah. When Star City breaks off from the union, it'll be the world's ninth, ninth largest economy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, I mean, the, uh, yeah, I'm talking about the program stuff, and and you know, again, it's it's an all volunteer effort, and we're we're no less motivated than the people who would be getting paid to do it, but we just don't have the same resources at our command. One of which is time. Mm -hmm. If you know, again, we could do a lot of training if 250 of those 3,500 judges were employed full time, making sure people got trained. But the the people who want the training don't necessarily have all the time for it, and the people who want to provide the training don't necessarily have time for it. So that's 
one of the major challenges for the program to overcome. And when it, you know, as we, if we get even larger, it's, I think it's going to be a more significant challenge. Fortunately, web tools and applications are way better than they were a decade ago. We have a lot more, we have a lot more technological solutions to problems like that. Again, you know, in, in 2000, 2001, there were a couple of, you know, there were, there was, the review site, you know, there's DCIX and a couple of boards, but there wasn't, wasn't really a whole lot of, a whole lot going on, which is why when I started doing Ask the Judge on Star City, that it became so successful because it filled a need that just really wasn't there. You know, there were, there were probably people more qualified to do it than I was at the time. And, you know, I, I happened to fall into the role and we found, hey, people can ask questions and we can get them answered. And not, it's not just a one-on-one thing like what happens in a, you know, you, when you're at your local event, a guy says, how does this work? You might impact one or two players. When you have the web, you can impact quite, quite literally thousands of them and, and you know, at any one go. So we knew we we're going to talk about it at some point. Are we ready to talk about Commander? What's Commander? <laughs> EDH. Oh, it's, a, it's that thing that Wizards makes you call EDH. Yeah. yeah. Commander is fine. I don't, I don't mind. I mean, I think when I write, I, I think I'm in the habit now of writing Commander and speaking EDH, just because EDH is easier to say. Yeah. So, uh, so and I'm old. Did... I don't have, I don't have that much time left. I don't want to waste it. Okay. How much, how much did when Wizards came, or, or how did Wizards approach you guys and say like, hey, we want to rebrand EDH to Commander because we want to do a product, we want to productize it more or support well, it more. Remember Commander, Commander started, Commander, we started calling Commander online first. When they, when I, I, I actually think Lee was the one, Lee Sharp was the one that just kind of on his own time went and did the programming for making Commander viable online. And you might want to check me on that, on that fact, but I, I'm, if, if he wasn't, if he wasn't solely responsible, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was really significant in getting that, getting it ported over to the online. And there were, there were, there were just a couple of concerns with the name and with, with the, especially the, the creation of the command zone, it seemed relatively obvious to call it commander. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm sure there were marketing people and brand, you know, brand team people that were involved and we'd already been calling it the commander online. So when they told us that they were going to do product and call commander, we're like, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not really, I'm not so emotionally tied to the name. It's, it's the spirit that's can you me. Can you exaggerate and make it sound like there was a controversy? <laughs> so I burst into Watsi offices on <laughs> semi-automatic weapons. Oh. <laughs> I took Ken Nagel hostage. <laughs> And then lost the argument, though. Like, I guess they didn't care about him. Yeah, like, <laughs> call your bluff. Shoot hostage. What do we care? <laughs> um, yeah, no. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't have any stories of great controversy. You know, when it's it's a it's it's interesting to me on the message boards, uh, both on the official forums and some of the other ones like MTG Salvation, where people will talk about the the EDHR rules committee and talk about Wizards of the Coast like we were completely alien to each other. And, you know, I, a couple of times I've had to reinforce that the EDHRC are pretty much deep insiders. You know, we're, none of us, none of us besides Scott are obviously employees, but you know, a level E judge, a level five judge, a level four judge, a, rule, um, a regional coordinator, you know, it's it's not like we don't know what's what some of the inner workings are. 
you know, sure, I'm not I'm not allowed to wander through the pit at R and D anytime I want. But it's again, we're we're pretty we're pretty much tied in. So we always had a spirit of working together. You know, we knew it's we knew from the first time we picked it up that it was a great format. And all we really, really cared about was infecting other people with our with our passion. Uh so when he said they were going to do product. I'm like, insane. That's, you know, and, and it's, and, you know, I, I realized it was going to do exactly what it did, which was turn even more people into playing the best format ever. And so let's, let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Like, so, you know, I, I had a period, like a lot of magic players where I left magic for a while. And when I came back, EDH just uh, existed now. Do you know anything about like where it came from? I, I know because you're, you're kind of uh, mentioned as someone who really helped popularize, popularize it. Um, you might want to go back and reread the history via the format. As a matter of fact, uh, in I think in January, first second article in January that I wrote on Star City is about the earliest days of EDH. Okay. Uh, I was I was there at the beginning. I was under the impression that you actually created EDH. Is that not? Yeah, that's that's what I was kind of. Okay. Create creates a funny. I didn't make up the rule set. From the beginning, the the rule set was something that my one of the guys in my local gaming group in Anchorage, Alaska, named Adam Staley, introduced to our gaming. Group. We had this great we had this great gaming group that met every Monday night. We played Friday Night Magic. We you know we did things together. We were you know and we, we were the nerd circle. And one Monday, uh, I went over to the place that we used to go to all the time, the apartment of uh, one of the guys, David Pfeiffer, like we did every Monday. I mean, it was it was it was gamer night. So we watched fantasy movies or we painted miniatures or we played board games or we played magic or whatever. And uh, one Monday I, I walked in and they were playing, five of them were playing magic the table already. And I'm like, hey, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh, we're playing this format that State Staley came up with called Elder Dragon Highlander. Oh, cool. Well, the, you know, the five of you are playing. So let me play some Hot Shots Golf here on the on the PlayStation <laughs> 2 uh, while you guys are doing that. And I got involved with the format in the beginning, but never actually played it while I was still in Alaska. And I, I left I left Alaska in 2003 and moved to Virginia. And I brought it with me and introduced it to my local my local group there. Um, great bunch of guys, casual magic players, small collections, you know, just guys that you know kind of love kitchen table magic. You know, the the kind of the kind of magic that gets played around the world at kitchen tables and in bars and restaurants and whatnot. And it had, I hadn't been there a month or two when I suggested, Hey, you know, there's this format, this really, really cool format. Cause I'd spent a lot of time in Alaska with the guys that were playing it discussing the format. And I realized there were some problems. I mean, again, none of them came from a, from a background of understanding magic from a policy level or understanding formats from a policy level. Uh, so I immediately kind of applied a different filter to, to what they were doing. I'm like, uh, biorhythm is really bad card for this format. <laughs> um, well, no, cause you just, you play wrath and then you just biorhythm and win. Like, well, yeah, that's really kind of just win is bad. <laughs> anyway, so I introduced it to the, um, to the, to lo- my local guys in Virginia and we soon, it was all we played. Oh, you know, they would come over on Sundays and, we played some other just regular multiplayer, but soon it was EDH, 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 EDH. It's all we played. And at some point in 2004, I think, early 2004, I wrote an article about the format on Star City. Um still doing Ask the Judge, but I did on Fridays, I didn't answer questions. I called it Feature Friday and wrote about magic stuff that didn't involve answering questions. 
and I wrote an article about it and did a contest to make a Lord of Tressorhorn deck because Lord of Tressorhorn is a tough general to build around. And uh, it got some, you know, it got some play online or in the, you know, in the online discussions. And at some point, I took it, I took a couple of decks with me to the Pro Tour and introduced it to the judges. And it was like dropping a lit match onto a uh, dry grass covered in gasoline. It just, it just exploded really, really fast. And I, at one of the events, Oh, so long ago. At one of the events, I handed Scott Larrabee the Lord of Tressorhorn deck, because that was one of that, you know, we were just sitting down to play. He's like, what are you guys doing? You know, it was, you know, it was after the last round of that day of the Pro Tour or whatever. It's like, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're about to play to EH. Well, what's that? I handed him the Lord of Tressorhorn deck, and about three turns in, he's like, holy crap, I'm hooked. And he took it back. He took it back to Watsi with him. Soon people there were playing. And then again, it just, it really just spread like wildfire because of the judge program. Uh, obviously there are a lot more people that play commander now than just judges, but in the, in the really founding days of the format, uh, it was a, it was a judge thing. Occasionally players would walk by and like, Oh, well, look at that. You know, Oh, what kind of crazy shenanigans are you guys doing? And people would, would come by and see that we were just enjoying ourselves. We were having a lot of laughs. We were having a lot of fun. And I think that that atmosphere is what caught on. So to answer the, the answer, really the question, Jess, did I create it? No, but I created what it become. You know, I, Abner Doubleday didn't invent baseball, but he made it into the, into the game that has become the game that we have today. So, um, you know, I, I see myself, I'm creates, not really the right word. Invents, not really the right word. I'm not necessarily sure what refined pioneered pioneered is what I keep using. So you also you also helped make it popular by bringing it so much to the judge community. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly I was the guy. I was the guy that threw the match in the gas can for sure. Um, I can't take I can't take all the credit for making it spread because it it really wasn't sure. I mean, by the time by the time EDH started becoming popular. I was level four, level five. So I had some, you know, I had some notoriety and influence, but it's the format that sells itself. I don't, you know, I don't, you don't really need to do a sales job. Uh, somebody's like, so what's the CDH about? You, you don't, you tell them the basics, you tell them about the commander and you tell them about the 21 damage and you tell them about the colors and color identity. And then you just watch because the, because the format sells itself. In that very first game you were talking about where you played Hot Shots Golf 2 or, Whatever. Uh, what was your score? No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> where, did they? Uh, was each commander actually one of the Elder Dragon legends? Yes, that was okay. that was the idea behind the format. There were there were five there were five generals. Each of them were assigned to a person. Yeah. So Arcady Sabbath is mine. You know, the the Victus Asmati is yours, uh, and that's it. There was one person, and we talked about expanding the group. Because the, you know there were five players playing already. Like okay, so let's let's and again, I think this is where my experience with with formal formats came into play. Because like you know, I started thinking, I started thinking, not how do we do this, but how do we how do we make this better? How do we get more people involved? How do we you know how do we make it a regular thing that we do? Because it is kind of cool. Everyone fought over nickel bullets. No, back in the day we didn't. Oh. Nobody cared. <laughs> It wasn't that. The first uh, um, magic card I ever bought was Arcade, uh, Arcades, or you pronounced it Arcades? Arcades. That was the first card I ever bought. I remember when I was a kid, I bought it because I was like, well, he costs this much mana, and like he He's must be good, right? <laughs> He's a um, yeah, so we, we, you know, we started 
thinking about how to expand it. And we had a list. I, you know, I, I wonder if those websites are still up because we, you know, we had we had a website about who had what general assigned. And back in the early days, there were two different rules. There was the the league rule and the open play rule. And the league rule was only one player could have any single legendary creature as a general, and nobody else could have that card even in their deck. So, you know, we were playing a league where Arcadia Sabbath was one of the generals. I simply couldn't put that in my deck. Um, when, you know, we got a little more formal around 2006, late, 2000, late 2005, early 2006, uh, maybe even before that. Again, a lot of this, you know, I would love to do the complete history of EDH Commander, but a lot of it's left is just lost to time. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we were doing it. We were enjoying it. We weren't really thinking about we weren't thinking about sculpting it as this thing that it's become. And you were thinking that someday somebody on a podcast would be asking you about the history of this format you were creating. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> we, um, I just want to know, smash. We, we were just, all right, you know, what's, what's cool. It was always the first question we asked ourselves. Um, when Gavin Duggan came to me and said, Hey, we should formalize a little more. Cause it's, you know, the judges, judges like formal things and like rules and like boundaries. So like, well, let's, let's make a rules committee. It's like me and you and who he said, well, maybe how about Duncan McGregor? I was like, yeah, Duncan McGregor. He's a fan of the format. He's a level three judge. He, you know, is really knowledgeable in the rules. So the three of us just kind of, again, we were just kind of stumbling around in the dark trying to figure out what would be cool for the format and, uh, you know, what we, we, we certainly over these seven or eight years learned a lot about managing a format and about not only doing the things that makes it successful, but not doing the things that would kill it. And one of those, one of those things that would kill it would be the 150 card ban list. And, oh, you should ban that. Oh, you should ban that. Oh, you should ban that. Right. There's a, there's a, there's a, a point where the ban list would get to critical mass and it would just, I think it would just be over. Uh, it would, it would really be the death knell of the format. So, I mean, we're not going to sacrifice ourselves on the altar of keeping the ban list small. When, if Grizzlebrand V.2 comes out, you can, you know, if it does this anywhere near the same thing, it's going to get banned again. You know, it's going to get banned. We're not going to let, we're not going to let really, really broken cards run amok in the format. So we, we've learned a level of sophistication that we didn't have seven or eight years ago. Uh, again, we've added, we've obviously added since then some great magic minds like Toby, like Kevin Dupre. So we really have, you know, we have a, we have people that understand magic at its atomic levels on the rules committee. So we have a lot better chance of doing really well when we're, when we're making decisions about the format. So, so question. Now, I'd heard that the way you get on the rules committee is by killing a previous member and eating their heart. Uh, who did Toby and Kevin have to have to kill to get on the rules committee? Well, that was the time that we actually decided to expand. Oh, so there were just innocent civilians oh. that were butchered and consumed. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I think you make that joke every time we talk about a committee of some kind. <laughs> it, well, because in my mind, that's what committees do, right? <laughs> So what kind of, I have a question, Sheldon, that we really didn't, I mean, we didn't talk too much about. How often is it that, that people come to you now for, for policy advice or anything? I mean, you said you talked to Toby about it, whether there's a new policy that comes out and, and, and uh, you want to know more about it. But how often do the policymakers or people that are making changes to rules or anybody come to you for advice before stuff comes out in your status as, as, uh, 
Judge Emeritus. Occasionally, um, uh, you know, I'm still on. I'm still on all the lists, all the mailing lists that I used to be on. I pay attention to most of the threads. Um, when it when it starts getting when things start getting down into the weeds about you know how we're going to train judges and stuff like that, I, I don't pay that much attention because you know I'm not going to be actively involved in in those kind of things. But every now and again, somebody will bounce something off of me. Uh, it's more likely to happen these days. It's more likely to happen at an event than it is online. You know, that Andy doesn't doesn't shoot me an email that often and says, "Well, what do you think if we do that?" I, you know, I, it's in the last year and X months. It's it's happened a few times. Like, hey, you know, we're thinking about this. What do you think? Uh, I'm still welcome to weigh in. Any you know, anytime there's a discussion on the on the on the level four list or the you know if there's a level five list anymore. Anytime there's a discussion, I'm welcome to weigh in. But I I generally wait unless I have something outside the box. You know, I, I don't I try to not jump up in front of anybody who might be making the same point that I make. Uh, you know, it's it's their it's their thing to do now. So um, I enjoy watching them do it. So Sheldon, why do you think EDH became so popular among judges? Well, I, I don't think, I actually don't think that there was too much that the judges, that, that was inherent to judges, that's not inherent to other Magic players, mm-hmm. uh, that got them into the format. It's just that, that they were the first group exposed to it. Okay. You know, they were the first group who had, had significant motivation to play it, and they were the judges were the, the people on the ground floor of the format as it was, as, as it was really being founded. I mean, we're, and again, when we talk about founding the format, I'm not talking about that five player game up in Anchorage. I'm really talking about the, you know, my post Virginia move and bringing it to the pro tour type deal. Um, they, they were, I, I, I really think that, that there were, they were just the first group exposed to it. If there was a thing that I would point to, it's that because it's a, it's a, a vintage format, you can play anything. There were a lot more crazy things happen in, in EDH games than there are in standard or there were in extended at the time or anything like that. So there was just, there were more opportunities for judges to get involved with unusual card interaction situations. Um, so, you know, that, that could have played some small part, but again, I think, I just think the format is its own best evangel and the judges were the, the judges are now. I will point to the fact that the judges are better at evangelizing than the player base as a whole. When the judge community, when the judge community gets an idea <laughs> and, and it resonates with them, there the judge community is really, really good and really, really passionate about spreading the message. So I think we do have the judge community to to thank for a lot of you know the the spread of that wildfire. Because of their because of their enduring passion for magic and they're just you know their their passion for for sharing with other people what they love to do. I guess it doesn't hurt that judges probably travel a little more than the sure. average player too. Right. Oops. Yeah. I mean they're 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 not necessarily tied to to single stores or local areas, so they're gonna they're gonna impact more people. What is uh, Gladwell calls them? They're in the tipping point. He calls them. He calls them crap. <laughs> no, I didn't call them crap. Agents. Uh, anyway, there's, there's a term. There's a there, there's mavens. Mavens are the people that are like the rules gurus, and then there's they're the they're the other people that that help things spread faster. And it'll come to you know two o'clock in the morning. I'm gonna wake up and go. Oh, that's Pros- it. Proselytize. Well, it, 
yeah, I, I, again, I don't remember, I don't remember specifically what he calls the rules, but yeah, there in the in the spread of any idea, there there are people who are this this they're the internalists, and then there are people that are the externalists, and the judges were definitely the externalists, the one that that, that carried the message out that that got people infected with the with the delicious virus that is commander. Well, speaking speaking of the delicious virus that is Commander and just in players in general, we uh this is a really awkward segue. Yeah, really. Uh, we it is. <laughs> what are you trying then, to do well, here? it was. I was gonna say like we got a lot of questions about EDH, and then I realized that it wasn't all just about EDH. So it was a really awkward segue. But we'll you'll you'll fix that in editing. Yeah, right, sure. It sounds great. Fix the segue in editing. Yes. I'm not sure it works that way. <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna, you're, 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 there's just gonna be a, a silent period, period, and then the Benny Hill music <laughs> is gonna play. And then we'll go back to talking. <laughs> That's awesome, yes. We had, uh, uh, we told listeners in our, in our, uh, in our pod, uh, podcast last week and on, and on Facebook today that we would ask you any question that they asked us. Sure. And so, let me let me bring those up. We had from one of the questions that we had from Blair, and they they're all over the place. Yeah. From Blair Simpson, we have a request. What's your favorite song that Dream Theater has covered? <laughs> My favorite song that Dream Theater cover has covered is Elton John's "Funeral for a Friend" and "Love Lies Bleeding." This is, this is all over my head. How about yeah, I, from Jars Yars Cristobal? <laughs> He asks, based on height, who is the biggest judge you've ever met? Who is the smallest? Which I think we all know the answer for biggest. The biggest, the biggest judge, the biggest judge I ever met was Matt Fairbanks. Oh, I, it's not Matt Tabak? Matt Tabak is the tallest judge. Well, he says based on height. Oh, based on height, yeah, Matt Tabak's tall. Okay. No, no, as a matter of fact, Matt Tabak is not. Uh, there was a Belgian fellow named Wessel Carlier who was probably two inches taller than that. No. Wessel was 6'10 or 6'11. Wow. Yeah, there was a great picture of Belgian National 1997 or something of me and Wessel having a conversation. Uh Oh, (laughs) you can imagine that camera. It looked like a semicolon or something, right? Uh, Mark Rivkin. Right, no, what? Hold on. Who's the oh, smallest? Oh, the smallest, sure. The smallest. <sighs> you didn't say the pettiest. Oh. <laughs> uh, Turner should really get my boot off his neck. <laughs> and maybe he will someday. Um, the shortest? Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't say. Yeah, you don't really notice the shortest person you ever met. You, you notice giants. You don't notice, you know, like, the no, shortest yeah. people. All right. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think I notice pretty short people. Like, that's... Not, when I see short people, it just looks weird to me. I'm, not me. I'm I mean, six not, foot not three. Weird, so like, but just like everyone ahead. who isn't my height to me is short. I don't understand. And then everyone who's above my height is just a giant. <laughs> so there's no in between. There's no in between. Either. Six foot two and below, short. Six foot four and above, giant. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> just letting you know. All right. All right. Now I'm finally going to read this question from Mark Rivkin. He wants okay. to know if you were stranded on a, a desert island, what five wines would you want with you? Ooh, that's a good question. Five wines would I want with me? Now, I mean, I guess I get an infinite supply of these five wines. We'll see. I would, I would want to have the 1989 Lynch Baj. I'm even going to restrict this to wines that I've ever I've ever actually consumed myself. Okay. Because uh, it'd be easy to say great year of million dollar wine. 1989 Lynch Baj, uh, which is a Bordeaux. I would have any any vintage of the Martinelli Vineyards Jackass Vineyards Zinfandel. 
you say Jackass Vineyards? I did. <laughs> they, okay. They in fact have a Jackass Vineyard and a Jackass Hill Vineyard. I'm so glad oh. I didn't want to. I didn't want to question that. I was like, must be some French thing. I'm just mishearing. <laughs> Jackass. <laughs> Jackass. I would have the 2002 Kilsada Creek signature Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, we're making some of the best cab in our country in Washington and and in Washington State. I would have. An infant supply of non-vintage Ruinar Rosé Champagne. And I would have infant supply of... Uh, there's got to be a great Pinot that I would have in there. Which one would I choose? Probably, I would probably go back to... I would go with the Costa Brown, the 2007 or 8 Costa Brown Pinot Noir Russian River Valley. Right. Unfortunately, I don't know anything about wine, so I can't say anything intelligent after that. I don't even drink. So, Mark Rubkin, I hope you're happy with that answer. <laughs> All right. Andrew Mantha asks, who made the kill Rashad first rule? I did. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I I did, but all sensible people agreed to it right away. What I I have never heard of this. What is what is the kill Rashad first rule? Uh, kill Rashad first. <laughs> well, I, okay, I get that, but why? Because you kill Rashad first. I mean, I I hate to I hate to make this into a complete tautology, but kill Rashad first. <laughs> all right, I, I can follow that logic. Okay, there wasn't any logic there. No, you kill no, Jess. You kill Rashad first. by the same statement. Oh, George, not the livestock. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> All right. Stephen Walsh asks, how, how, how do you recommend shuffling an EDH deck so that it is sufficiently randomized? Personally, I pile shuffle. I pile shuffle in the nines. That way I can count nine piles of 11. Uh, I pile shuffle and then, and just ripple shuffle, ripple shuffle, ripple shuffle. I mean, it's, I, you know, it's a lot of cards to, to move around and sufficiently randomized. As long as it's not stacked, I think you're okay. All right. Uh, Aaron DePaul asks, if you were to retire from the EDH council, the secret council, who would you pick as your successor? Are you actually the leader of the council, though? It's, I mean, it's a council, right? Yeah, it's a committee. Yeah. Um, committee. I, I might enjoy some small uh, first along equals. Right. Just because I'm there on the ground floor. But, yeah, there's no there, – it, it, my vote doesn't count any more than anybody else's vote. Um, I wrote in September of last year, I wrote about the process by which we make decisions. But yeah, no, no committee members vote counts more than anybody else. And that means the new guy coming on, you know, we just added Devin Rule um, recently and his vote counts exactly the same as mine. If, you know, if I can't, if I can't convince everybody else that the point I'm making is the right point, then, you know, I don't deserve to have them listening to me. They, they, they don't, they don't just listen to what I have to say because I'm me. They listen to what I say because it might be valid. Uh, and the answer to the question, if I, well, it depends. It depends why we're, we're retiring. If I were retiring because I was mad at the rest of the RC, I would make Justin Turner my replacement. <laughs> wow. I know he doesn't um, listen to this, so. He does. Uh, we'll have to tell him to listen just for the yeah. digs. If I was, when I eventually retire because I get too old, I will nominate Charlize Theron to replace me. Nice. 
Unfortunately, Brian already answered this, though. It's whoever eats your heart. Oh, that's true. Yeah, be the one who replaces that. you. Maybe shirt well, Charlize <laughs> Theron. <laughs> Just give it, take it, take it's it. It's yours. So, Andrew John Quigley, kind of an odd fella, he asks you, will they ever do another unset? I have no idea. Exactly. He also asks, if Nibbola asks Andrew if I want to proceed to combat and I tell Nibbola to do the Harlem Shake, they're obligated to do it, right? Um, gonna have to plead ignorance on the Harlem Me Shake. Me too. I think it's like the Truffle Shuffle from the Goonies. I have no idea. Imagine the answer's no. We we shouldn't do well, things for our my listeners. Answer, my answer, this was, the question was from Andrew John Quigley. Yes. I would, my answer would be, Andrew John Quigley, please use your powers for good <laughs> instead of evil. The next one, who I bet I'm going to say his name wrong, but Gil, Gil's LaBelle, uh, his, his, his is nice. Probably. Anyway, he asked you to describe your perfect Sunday. My perfect Sunday. Uh, I would get up in the morning and have, well, first of all, every Sunday that I have is already per- pretty perfect because I wake up next to the most beautiful one in the history of the world. But it would begin with getting up uh, after probably shoving four or five of the cats off the bed so that I could actually get up. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I understand. Having having a nice espresso, um, Stumptown Coffee Ro- Roasters, Portland, Oregon. That's where I get my beans. You should get them there because they're awesome. And then a light breakfast on the lanai, the pool already gurgling, the sunlight just coming in. So maybe reading for an hour or two as the day starts to warm up. And then start cooking for the eight or ten friends who are going to come over and raid the wine cellar. We're going to drink, we're going to plan to drink eight bottles of wine between the dozen of us and we're going to end up drinking 12 or 13 instead. And we're going to, we're going to hang around outside the entire day till it gets dark and we pile everybody in the limousine and send them back home. We're going to have eaten uh, a world class meal that we made with our own hands and our friends help and drink a bunch of great wine and just have the same kind of camaraderie that that people enjoy with people that they appreciate. That to me, to me, doing stuff with people that you really care about is the best thing in the world. I, now I feel awesome. I feel bad that I had to ask you the the final. <laughs> I should have ended on that one. What am I doing? Well, it's from. Uh, it's so from... I, have another, I have another question. Could you please describe your perfect Sunday, like with the ice cream, and chocolate? <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. Oh, I misinterpreted the question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, the the final question comes from Sean Cadenese, former host of the show, regional coordinator, all around and cool guy. He has: Does the banning of Sundering Titan and Commander mean that he that you actually you actually do negotiate with terrorists? No, no. Oh, <laughs> these questions. No, no negotiating with terrorists. And I'll oh. tell you now. I'll tell you now, just in case any of you were ever involved, I am shooting the hostage. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I guess it's good to know that up front. Yep. I'm not fooling around when I say duck. <laughs> All right, Sheldon, we had one last situation we wanted to talk to you about before we wrap this show up. Uh, we just brought up a question a while ago, and since we knew we were having you on, we just asked our listeners to email us their answers to this situation that we were going to ask you as a as a guy who knows a lot about judging. Uh, Jess, do you want to summarize the situation real quick? Sure. So, Sheldon, you obviously, you know, Cavern of Souls. Uh, you know the new card, Thespian Stage? Yeah. Okay. The, the question revolves around a player activating Thespian Stage to copy Cavern of Souls. 
And and then when he does so, saying, I'll name Beast. Is the opponent obligated at that point to tell him, no, that card doesn't work the way you think it does? Or can the opponent just stay quiet and hope he casts a threat test that he can count on? Um, I don't, yeah, I don't see any, I don't see any sensible situation where I would make the, I would make the opposing player disabuse the first guy of his misinterpretation of the card. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, there's, there's no way that I would hold him to that. What, what I would hope, of course, is that he just says in good sportsmanship, card doesn't work the way you think it works. Right. right. But there's, there's, there's absolutely no scenario where I would legislate that he had to tell the guy. I don't. I think that definitely doesn't fall in the free information category. Okay, that's uh, that's a very definitive answer, which is exactly what I wanted. But yes. you actually had answers running the gamut from what from from your answer all the way to no, this guy's committing fraud. And so so I, I wanted to get your opinion on this since we weren't really sure exactly how we'd handle it because I'd like the player, like you said, to say. No, this doesn't work the way you think it does, but at the same time, it would be almost impossible to enforce. Right. One of the because one of, one of the things you never want to do when you're creating a legislative system of any kind is make rules that you're either unwilling or unable to enforce because it it makes you less likely to be able to enforce the ones that you are willing to. You know, you don't want to you don't want to undermine your authority by having a rule that you don't enforce. Can I ask one last question that goes along with that? Since we're on the topic of policy right now, yes, you may if you uh, make a generous donation to a charity of your choice. <laughs> Catcrusaders.com. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, uh, So, actually, the question I have is, uh, it's about slow play. So, we uh, typically, as judges, have a policy of poking and prodding players to say, you know, hey, I need you to play faster. Mm -hmm. um, And kind of effectively giving them a caution before they get a warning. And I'm wondering why it's never been codified, or if it's ever been considered to be codified, to actually just give them a warning, or a, a caution, and then move on to warning, instead of having it be a warning, but also implying that you should poke at them first. Do you understand what I'm asking? Oh, no, I don't think you've actually asked a question yet. Oh, I was what? do you know if it's ever been considered to have it uh, changed to being a caution upgraded to a warning? Or do you have any insight onto why it's written as though warning is the first step and but taught as though it's not? So we want, we want, we want players to see judges as, as positive influences. And if, you, if you sort of give the player that little, that little nudge, you need to make a play now. I think that in the, in the big picture, uh, we're doing a lot more service to them and to the game as a whole than just dropping the elbow. There's, there's no real, I think there's no real need to formalize the caution. Um, I think that you, you have to be, judges have to be willing to call slow play. They have to be willing to call slow play in, in difficult situations. I mean, high level magic especially is about making difficult decisions in complex situations in a timely fashion. And we, we're just, we're never going to have chess clocks in the live game. It's just, it, it just can't work. There are too many priority passes and we need up the whole turn passing back priority back and forth. The, the, the thing is, certainly over the years, we discussed a lot about slow play, um, how to, how to legislate it, what to do when it comes around, what to do when players don't speed up, things like that. But the, the real bottom line, I think what you're getting at, Jess, is, is it, are we better off helping the player out a little bit? 
hundred percent believes that we are. Um, mm-hmm. If you, I, I mean, I always tell judges one thing about both slow play and unsporting conduct. If you think it might be, it already is. So you have to, you pay attention, pay attention yourself to the situation. Um, don't ever walk up to a situation and 10 seconds later call slow play unless you've been watching it from a distance. You know, you have to, you have to see the situation in order to call it. But giving the player the little nudge is way better for all of us in the long run than just sitting there waiting. And, you know, when the, when the second hand ticks down on your mental clock, okay, I'm going to warn you for slow play. I don't think it's, I don't think it's required. And quite honestly, the higher the level we're at, I think the less necessary it is from a technical standpoint, but probably the better off we are from a, from a public relations standpoint. Again, just, just because pro tour players are the best of the best doesn't mean they deserve sort of, you know, a, a stronger, a stronger hand from us. They, you know, I think we owe them, we owe them good customer service too. So I think that, I think that the, that's just that little nudge. Uh, the, the thing is you, that, that, that you, you need to make a play now is sort of an implied threat. You don't, you don't actually have to say you need to make a play now or I'm going to warn you because it's impressive. Right. And then I think you just, you can't be shy about pulling the trigger on that slow play one. Okay. okay. Awesome. That actually answers the question very thoroughly. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. Oh, oh Ryan, you have something else yeah. to say? Well, this is, this is just, um, uh, Sheldon, uh, do you have a, uh, blog or something where you might discuss certain, uh, foods and wines? I do, as a matter of fact. I have a blog called discoveriesinfoodandwines.com. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Imagine that. I was going to get to the plug um, section in I, a little bit, Brian. Oh, okay. Well, we don't have I show notes. It, so I, 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 I link it from both my Twitter account and my Facebook account, both of which are my real name. And I talk about one man's journey to find life's finer pleasures. Uh, I talk a fair amount about cooking myself. Uh, I don't have any classic training of any kind, any formal training of any kind. I think I took a knife skills class once that I ended up cutting myself in. But other than that... Um, Would you say you were cut uh, from the class? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> puns are minus XP's. Oh. Uh, and especially uh, sometimes what I'll talk about is is not just what you should do in the kitchen, but what you shouldn't do in the kitchen based on what I just did. So, yeah, uh, please feel free to to go to discoveriesinfoodandwine.com and comment today. As a matter of fact, I brainstormed on improving my favorite sandwich, which is the bacon and cream cheese sandwich. Sounds good. It's got bacon on it. How can you already, how can you improve it unless it's you're adding more bacon? You know, strangely enough, somebody else made that suggestion. Did they now? Shocking. All right, real quick, let me just mention, we're, we're actually recording this show fairly uh, close to the release of our previous show, so we don't have any emails that we want to read off this time. We will get to emails. We, we only have one. We'll get to it next show. So, Sheldon, I want to – oh, wait, contact information. So if you guys want to email us, though, you can email us at judgecast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash judgecast and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash judgecast. And you can visit our fancy website, mtgjudgecast.com. 
Sheldon, thank you so much for being on. I know you spent quite a lot of time with us, but I've really enjoyed it, and I think our listeners will too. My distinct pleasure for being here. Thanks for asking me. Thank you for coming. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, everyone listening, thank you so much for listening. My name is CJ Trader. I keep it fair. My name is Justin Dunks. I keep it fun. My name is Brian Prilliman, and I keep it rambunctious. Rambunctious. <laughs> Sheldon, your picture's intimidating. It's supposed to be. Good, because it's working. <laughs> Have you met Sheldon? He's kind of it's, intimidating. It's what, it, what, it's what makes the bad guys scared. <laughs> Just staring at me, I don't know. See, if you were if you were an honest, good-hearted person who wasn't going to cheat, that picture wouldn't scare you. <laughs> Innocent people have nothing to hide.